This is Real World Product Management. Hello, everyone. This is yet another episode of the Real World Product Management, and I have Richard on the call with me. Richard, hi. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi. Uh, yes, this is Richard. Hey, Richard. Thank you. Um, so first question and um, to kind of understand uh, why are we talking to you? Sure. Can you tell us more about uh, who you are, what your role is, and what kind of organization you're working with? Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, Richard as well. Uh, I, I work out of San Francisco and here in the Bay Area, um, here in California. I work for a company called uh, Bug Crowd as the product manager. Um, Bug, Bug Crowd, we do uh, crowdsource uh, cybersecurity. Um, we started as a, initially as a bug bounty company. Um, a brief statement of what that is, is we connect hackers with companies and facilitate vulnerabilities and distributing that across um, the two the two user bases. So, yeah. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you work with any big names or this is more of a small scale operations? Because from what I know, comp- large companies like Facebook, Microsoft, they have their own bug yep. bounty programs. That's right. Um, so we work with uh, actually quite quite a large enterprise customers. Um, we can we work with Netgear, TripAdvisor, um, Netflix, to just name a few um, enterprise. But we work with the mid market as well, um, where a company doesn't have the resources to have um, security team like a Google, like a Facebook, um, to to run their own bug bounty. So we come in the middle and help um, help them out. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Um, and by the way, thank you. We all want to live in a more <laughs> secure world. Right. Um, so talk me through your kind of start of your career as a product manager. How did you, how did you end up being a product manager? And I, I, seem, I seem to have uh, a number of stories from different people sure. and not, not two are the same. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really interested in hearing what's up with you. Yeah. Um, so I, I joined Bug Crowd a little over four years ago now. Um, when I joined, the company was relatively small. We had about 45, 40 individuals across the world, um, mostly based in San Francisco. Um, and they didn't have a, a head of support. Um, support was managed across multiple departments within the company. Um, when I joined, it was collapsing all the of them down into a single individual. Um, and that was myself. Um, when I joined, uh, we were using Intercom as a support channel. Um, we were mainly email-based. Um, and we supported both the, the researcher community, the customer base, and internal stakeholders. Um, and through my first three years of being in support, um, I built out the team, uh, built in uh, the different support metrics uh, that was needed for leadership to see, to have insight into what we could fix. Um, Through that experience, I learned a lot of empathy. Um, I heard this comment, empathy tank. Um, End of the day, uh, when I would go home to my girlfriend, the empathy tank would be exhausted. Um, Through three years of doing support tickets, it's very transactional. Um, And through that process, I came to know the platform quite well. Um, I knew the in and outs. I knew the faults. Um, I knew where to not um, to talk about. So when three years came about roughly, um, I felt like this was not as fulfilling because I couldn't really fix the problem. Um, I reached out to, to product engineering and had a pretty frank discussion on what can support do beyond um, just answering tickets and submitting um requests into the engineering to be a part of the backlog. So um, product became the natural reaction. Um, A lot of PMs or PMs at the time um, recommended, hey, why don't you come on our team? You know the platform well, you know the stakeholders across the the company, um, even our customers in certain cases. Um, Join product, you have now engineering resources backing you to, to alleviate some of the problems you saw in support. So that that's kind of my bridge into um, product management. Wow, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of people coming over from BA mm. uh, world. I myself came in from software development, project yeah. management world. Now we have somebody coming from support, which is sure. cool. I think yeah. now that you said it, I actually think it's it's one of the best uh, ways to get into product. Mm. Uh, BA is probably the same, yeah, uh, because BA stands uh, in a place where you collect the information 
and uh, 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 kind of like input into the product. And as, as a support person, you stay at the uh, output uh, yeah. or or kind of on the, at the beginning of the feedback loop, which is also a pretty good place to be. So that that's that's pretty cool. Okay, yeah. so you actually made a transition and and you joined the product product team. How many product managers did you guys have there? Uh, when I joined, we had one product manager managing um, roughly 20 engineers at the time. Um, so he was well overworked, um, completely inundated with all these requests, obviously unable to prioritize and fulfill. Um, and I was the second one um, coming up on board. Was there any kind of a structure around that? Um and by structure, I mean developers broken into teams yeah. that are working on the specific pillars, such as Epic's uh, features, yeah. individual products. How did that work? Sure. Um, the structure was we had a team in San Francisco um, and we had another team in Australia and they would tackle different themes within the product um, if they were... if. One team would focus more on the researcher side, another uh, customer, and another um, internal products. Uh, so it was divided in that sense. Yeah. So one product manager was overseeing everything. Uh, correct. A little, uh, a lot of work um, on his front. Yeah. Okay. So how do you guys structure the work once you've uh, once you've joined and uh, there's there was two of you now? Yeah. So that transition was interesting. Um, it was during a holiday season. So he was off on holiday and I came in and kind of just took on what was the backlog at the time and what was already being um, worked on in epics and sprints for that quarter. Um, working on products or working on improvements within the product was a lot more seamless for me because I, I knew what was going on. Um, um, we, we didn't have the idea of new products at the time. We were still working on a backlog to help, um, create small fires to put out small fires. So when I joined, um, those were the first forefront of my mind. How can we alleviate the, the short term, um, pains that the, the customer and the user base were encountering? Um, so that, that's kind of what I picked up right away. And I felt really accustomed to that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So you started, you started at the more tactical level, which is that's understandable right. yeah. and that had you kind of grow into doing more strategic stuff, as I understand. That's right. Correct. Given that you're still there, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, it, in general, generally speaking, it went well. What do you think was the la largest challenge or how we ask in the enterprise world, mm. what kept you up at night uh, yeah, during those uh, times? I think adoption was was really key in the, in the beginning. Um, we We were more consultative. I guess in a, in a sense, um, they were people, customers, users, um, internal stakeholders would request things and expect um, a turnaround time with a deliverable. Um, that's not the motion that our, our product leader wanted to um, the cadence that we wanted. For certain requests, sure, they would be transactional, um, but certain ones that product managers should be driving, products should be driving the the, the themes and how we build out. Um, so we noticed um, adoption. We would build uh, a problem would come in, we would build it um, in a sprint, and then it would sit on the wayside and not be actually utilized. So we saw that right away. Like. Were, were they using the, the feature? Were they using the chart that we built and spent engineering resources, actual currency money? Um, and that became a, a sticking point early on. Okay. Since you've mentioned the real money. Yeah. Uh, one of my previous guests mentioned that uh, based on their structure and their uh, ways of doing things, they had an actual dollar value on each mm. support ticket. Each support <laughs> ticket actually cost them real money. Uh. Uh, would was there anything like this in your case or was it just the resource use that cost you? It was more of a broader resource. No one knew how much they were, were spending. Um, it was a request and they were putting, they were taking money out of the bank, but never putting any deposit, anything back in. Um, and we didn't have a monetary idea. We didn't have a, uh, a dollar in each feature, but um, I, I do like that idea. I guess uh, it does work in certain cases. Yeah, and, and I loved I loved that idea because it translated directly to the products I am managing in my current company, or mm. rather managed uh, until the last year in my uh, current company. So it definitely makes sense. Um, so when you were I, if something you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, you said there's um, 
there was no perception of monetary value on mm. features. Uh, um, my understanding is there is no ROI on mm. any kind of development work. So how do you guys measure how successful the product was? Uh, what was the success metrics or framework? Maybe you've, you've used the framework. Mm. Maybe there was something um, that made sense to you at the time. What was the success measure uh, as, as the whole? I think over time we did learn to use ROIs and metrics to, to drive them. And maybe I'm speaking um, in the short-term window. Um, some requests would come in tactical, with things that we had to do, RFEs, um, requests for enhancements for current customers. We would have to tackle those um, for the deal to continue, to renew um, the deal. Um, ROI, we, we base it on, um, it, it, it came to bottom, top of line. We, we talked about top of line a lot. How can we drive revenue? How can we expand to adjacent marketplaces? Um, and then those kind of funneled into our features and epics. Um, and that's kind of how we derived it early on. Um, I think now we're at a better place in the company and the teams. Um, we, we talk about ROI and KPIs a little more and it's a lot more defined um, in today's world. Okay. So you're not using any any specific thing? We're just trying to tailor it to the monetary value? We, we understand your answer. Uh, I mean, th- there's there's frameworks, right? We can we can talk about uh, the different frameworks that exist on how to prioritize work, um, and we've used some of them. I think certain PMs in in the company today have that intrinsically in in how they look at a, a feature and a request, um, but there's no standard across uh, the teams um, to utilize a certain framework. Interesting. Uh, do you? I'm, I, again, I, I don't want to uh, mm. intrude too much, mm. but why do you think you guys don't have a standard? Is that because you're lacking some kind of a central product governance? Mm. Or is that because of uh, inherent nature of things that those product managers are managing? What's, uh, what's the story there? Yeah, I, I think it breaks down to what I focus on personally, and I think it goes toward the service engineering side, which is my team, and we sm- we focus on shorter iteration, um, lower uh, time to value versus uh, other PMs that are working on new products, and their validation points are how what's the adoption from the market, from the security industry as a whole. Um, so when when I speak, I'm, I'm probably speaking more in my my lens um, versus the other PMs, um, but the broader theme I. I think um, that can be spoke about by leadership. And I haven't intrinsically felt that in my own um, purview. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Um, thank you for, for the answer. I yeah. really appreciate it. So talk to me about how you prioritized then and how you prioritize now, or rather let's even, you know, go a little higher. How do you guys manage your roadmap when you started versus how you guys doing this now? What, what was the transition? What so basically tell, talk to, talk me through what was back then? How mm-hmm. do you guys get to the current state, and what do you see as an ideal state if uh, if you can? Sure, of course. Um, so previous state, um, we had a lot of fires, um, a lot of tickets that would come in and, and deviate on the product roadmap. We had a, a sense of product roadmap um, uh, many years ago before I joined, um, but it was often deviated because of requests that would come in um, pretty pretty urgently. Um, emails would be called urgent or critical or whatever it may be um, to, to signal to engineers we should drop everything and focus on this. Um, this oftentimes distracted engineers from working on the, the overarching idea of how to move the platform forward. Um, when, when service engineering was introduced um, by my manager, um, it was an idea that we would have two separate roadmaps, one platform, more product focused roadmap on where the vision of of the platform will eventually go and a a service engineering roadmap or a service roadmap. Um, The service roadmap would be inherently meant for more short term wins, um, iterations that don't take months, but days versus weeks. Um, And that's how it's kind of deviated since Um, the team I work on work on is based out of Costa Rica and um, they understand the platform um, from top to bottom. And they do know the work that they're getting is not 
elongated in a quarter metric there. They, they do understand that the deliverables we have is smaller wins to make operations, to make the customer, to make the researcher feel um, that their requests are being heard and actually being actioned. Um, so that has been the, the major shift um, in perception to the, from the market and perception within the company. Wow, I'm I'm impressed. Having two separate roadmaps, one for support, mm. technically that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, so one's for support and one's for feature development. Mm. That's an interesting approach. Yeah. Okay. So that that is basically what it evolved into. That's you right. guys kind of started that almost intuitively, I mm. guess, and then that's what it evolved into. Um, that's what the current situation is. Yeah. So if you're saying that. Um, your engineers would be getting all these urgent, super urgent and critical emails sure. that was disrupting your natural flow. Uh, let me first, let me step back and ask, did you have any development, software development process in place? Anything uh, along the lines of Agile, Scrum, yeah. any of that stuff? There, there was an Agile built into the team. Um, there was that notion. Um, there was a Scrum leader that managing the the, the work that there was coming in, so... Um, we did have that idea, yes. The idea, or was it actual Scrum or actual Agile? Because, from, again, from my experience, mm -hmm. there's a lot of frameworks, a lot, sorry, a lot of governance that is mm -hmm. called Agile, where it's just what a time-based waterfall. Okay, so we're doing waterfall for two weeks now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just want to make sure I understand your situation. Yeah, I, I guess I can't really speak to it too much. I, I came in and um, was introduced to my team and um, we I, I knew the, the feature teams were a part of the Agile um, and they, they were running with their their two week um, iterations. And then I was running um, not in the same parallel, um, though we did we did do sprint reviews together. Um, the work was um, not always the same. Uh, yeah. OK, okay. no, it makes sense because. Yeah. You guys are, are managing completely different right. types of work, yeah. so to speak. So, yeah, it's totally understandable that you guys were not aligned. Although I would argue, and again, maybe it's just my personal experience, mm -hmm. I would argue that you still need some kind of a connect or some kind of mm -hmm. a sync between the teams because you guys were fixing what they were producing. Sure, yeah. So <laughs> to me... They should be really nice to you in the sense of <laughs> syncing up. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, that that's through the PR process, the, the peer review process of code review and, and code quality. Um, all the engineers, it was more round robin. So they did know what we were producing and, and the engineers, um, the service engineers were focused on. So um, I think there was a back and forth appreciation for what, what the team and service was actually accomplishing um, and how they're looking at it slightly different. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so let me ask you then a slightly different question. Mm -hmm. As, and uh, this is uh, me. I used to be a developer oh, yeah. many, many years ago. And I'm kind of, I, I, I'm kind of the person that likes doing new things or discover new things, which is why I ended up being a product manager. Sure. Uh, my, 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 I'm very, very heavily rooted in uh, R&D and mm -hmm. figuring things out. And as a developer, I was, I had the same mentality. Yeah. And whenever I was asked to fix other people's code, other people's problems, yeah. I would get, I wouldn't be very negative, but I would get very defensive mm, and sure. um of course it's not a good it's not a good uh character trait right uh, but it was it was it is it is what it is i, yeah, I used right. to be like that and yeah. I'm, I'm just curious aren't your developers at least partially uh resentful I, i'm not sure how to how to soften that yeah. word so i'm just going right. to use resentful sure. for now yeah um aren't they at least a bit resentful saying hey we're always fixing things we're never building new things and we want to build new things so let somebody else fix the bugs i i think there we so the tickets itself is we split on a defects and then um improvements and, and feature improvements so the defects sure um there there comes i am sure if they get inundated um if their work was 80 20 and 80 percent of it was defect um, I, I bet there would be that resentment um instilled over time but 
the team does focus on feature enhancements as well. Um, so I don't know the percentage split today, but uh, they do focus on um, once they see a defect and how can we improve it on the user experience. Um, we, we do um, have that notion as well. So um, it's just not fully focused on defects. And I see very similar parallels um, with security engineers. Um, when you see a vulnerability, you have to... Uh, a Coinbase, someone, a security engineer at Coinbase recently did a presentation at AppSec Cali, and his notion was we cannot criticize um, our engineers for their for the vulnerabilities that come out. Um, we have to be able to do better. Um, it, it's not a person that did it. It's how can we create a system that just prevents them from ha- from actually creating those vulnerabilities from the beginning? Um, you, you can't blame the individual for a vulnerability that comes out um, and actually is, has million-dollar effects to the company. Um, it's how what kind of governance do we have in place um, to prevent that from happening? So, yeah. It makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So once you guys established that, mm-hmm. um, how do you – start or what do you what do you guys ended up on managing the roadmap i mean from from what i hear it sounded like you were very focused on fighting fires and it's it's not a bad thing yeah. uh, if if our if our knowledge is any indication we would argue that about 80% of any IT is firefighting. Sure. And that's that's basically, yeah. <laughs> that's where some of my products, the, the products I, I co-manage, mm-hmm. uh, that's where they, they are rooted in. Uh, so it, it's a normal thing. Uh, yeah. I'm just wondering, how do you guys push for moving your product forward? Or what was the situation when you realized, hey, we're not really doing anything new. We just keep, you know, rehashing the existing thing without moving things ahead yeah i think that's when we started introducing new uh product managers um at the time um we had two and um my counterpart was focused on how we can push the platform into another evolution another uh version um i was trailing behind um following any any misses that they were unable to capture um we hired two more product managers to focus on that uh, vision, um, some more outward focusing, how can we improve payments to to researchers? How can we um, build out more SDLC API endpoints to help customers facilitate vulnerabilities into the developer's hands? So we did have that concept of how can we evolve? Um, we were just capacity constraint in that sense. Um, uh, since you've mentioned that word, I, I feel like I'm obligated to ask okay. now. Who owned the vision for your product? We, or who owns it now? I think all the PMs own a piece of it. Um, we do have a head of product that owns a vision. Um, the, the, it comes from all ver- versions, right? There's the idea of bottom-up um, product views where PMs and support will derive new ideas and bubble it up into the product. It could be top-down. Um, leadership can say, hey, please do do this um, and PMs go off and scrambling and developing it out for, for the user base. I think it's a, it's a mix of both um, who owns it. I think uh, end of the day, the customer and the users own a, a bit of it um, and how we can improve it. Um, but all the product managers own a piece. Interesting. It's uh, almost like a co-op uh, ownership yeah. by a committee. Interesting. In, in in many cases in the enterprise, uh, at least that's what I'm seeing, mm-hmm. uh, vision is a collaboration between the product management office or product manager or head of product sure. uh, and the business. The uh, yeah. business being whoever makes money off of a product, which could be because it's definitely not a product organization. So that that's where the vision kind of stems from. Mm. Uh, it, it's interesting that you're saying that product management uh, owns it literally like a co-op everybody like shareholders everybody mm-hmm. owns a bit it's uh it's just it's definitely uh not the way i would imagine i imagined it before this episode yeah so thank you for that that's interesting i, I think there is a governance we we do have uh, an idea of prb um product review board where all the pms 
and any stakeholder within the company can present new ideas to the exact board, to leadership, and there will be a voting process. Um, uh, I guess co-op is, is fun. You mentioned that it is a very interesting idea and it might line up in parallels in certain use cases. Um, the government governance we have is um, a, a meeting where um, any stakeholder, myself, all the PMs um, can present new ideas, new functionality that requires um, company buy-in. Um, when that actually happens, um, people can ask questions, leaders can question what if this tactic, if this phasing makes sense. Um, and that, that kind of derives how uh, the product starts moving. Um, yeah. Okay, that's interesting because yeah. I was I was actually sitting here thinking, how do I ask this question? And you sure. literally led me to it. Okay, so I'm just gonna ask yeah. it straight up. Um, this kind of a internal sell uh, sales uh, pitch that mm. you guys are doing to stakeholders. How much? How much do you do? Uh, how much do you utilize data driven approach? Uh, in other words. Do you collect certain amount of data and then present it to the board or however you guys call it? Yeah. And then uh, say, hey, data points to this direction. Well, let's do this. Or are you experimenting? Let's say we built a couple of prototypes and this is what we have. And we think this prototype lo- makes more sense than this and this, but we're showing you all three as an example, right? Or do you guys just go with the product manager gut feeling? Because it's totally is a thing. I, I, yeah. I, I, I've, we've discussed this in some of the previous episodes, mm-hmm. and we agree that it's a thing. Uh, product management gut feeling mm. has absolutely has um, uh, has existed, uh, especially people who've been in product management capacity for a long time. So we kind of feel when things are right or wrong. Mm-hmm. What do you use? And, and it's okay if you use a combination of all of the above, but just walk me through how you guys deal with that. Yeah, I, I think we do. I mean, we do have metrics. We have analytical information on clicks and and, and throughout the platform. Um, I think that helps inform our decision. Um, when, when I was in college, um, one of my professors has mentioned um it, customers are always not always right in, in the sense we we do hear feedback from from customers, but um, it, are they right in the case that they're requesting this functionality? Um, so we do go in the metrics and start de- deriving that hey, the, what they're telling us does that actually line up with what we're seeing in the platform and interaction that we're seeing? Um, so that side is the the metrics pulled being pulled out. Um, the other side is a lot of PMs have that um, innate feeling already. Um, they can feel like this is not going to go well. Um, it can be changed. So we, myself being at the company for, for, for a couple of years, I do have that. Um, I do empathize with the users. I, I do understand that, um, without actually peeling away and looking at the metrics. Um, but yeah, so it's a little bit of both. It's, it's mixed. Yeah. Awesome. So let me, it, it's a tricky question. I'm, yeah. I'm warning you right up. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask you this how many times was there ever a case or how many times there was a case that you were absolutely hundred percent sure with your gut feeling Mm. that this is, this is the right decision and you've been proven wrong. And from my end, so you don't feel bad (laughs) from my end. It's about, I I had, I had less of them lately, Mm. but (laughs) when I was in up up until like seven years in, into the product management, I had that almost, half the time if i didn't have enough data to support yeah. my decision and i would go with the gut feeling it was yeah. almost 50 50 so i you know it's almost like i had no gut feeling at all <laughs> sure so, so what is it about you yeah i mean it's it's a scary thought you because you i mean we we try to do well i personally try to make sure all the the features the products um that i roll out is solidified be with some kind of data um but i've personally have an opinion. I, that's how I think about it. Um, I have an opinion on a, a feature or some kind of request that has come in and I'm waiting for the stakeholder or for someone to push me off of it. And we can have a discussion. Um, I have my own opinion and it's derived from data. It's derived from experience within the platform and everything I've gathered in life. Um, and I have the stakeholder or whoever wants to combat that. Um, does that go right or wrong? Um, sometimes my opinion can be swayed. Uh, and, I, I'm not batting a 
a hundred. I'm, I'm sure of that. I, I can. There's been iterations, um, but I think one thing I've done recently is phasing. Um, that has lessened the the impact of failure in my mind. Um, if we have a problem in a feature rollout that could take um, three months, I talk to the stakeholder and explain to them, "Hey, we can phase this approach out um, and minimize the risk of failure." Let's let's adopt this phase one, and I explain it to them. This accomplishes eighty percent of your request. Um, and phase two, we can iterate and, and build upon it. But phase one, do we all agree with this um, process, this rollout? Um, and for the most part, that has lessened the load on the failure on my end. Um, I don't know what, what what's your thoughts on the phased approach. I mean that that's the only approach for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah, I learned the hard way. I've mm-hmm. learned the hard way that it's uh, we we call them stages not phases but uh, it doesn't really matter yeah um yeah and and that's that's the kind of like part of it is a thought behind the mvp and or some people use minimal marketable product mm. uh, which is the bare, bare minimum of features that market or your clients are willing to accept and you build from there and the beauty of it is you build and add to the product in such a small uh iteration such small amounts of yeah. um the small amounts of uh, features that you can pivot at any time. You can always say, uh, stop, let's turn around and do this, or let's yeah. turn around and do other things. And that allows you to, and that's kind of like what we argue mm. is a benefit of adopting the product mindset Yeah, is because it costs less. You don't have yeah. to, uh, you know, have a vision of a future, you know, year, two years, three years, God forbid, five years yeah. down the road. And you can, you you you're only good in and that's that's what I uh, that's what I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. How do you plan the roadmaps? Um, and I'll I'll talk about it later. But that allows you to be very flexible. So phased mm-hmm. staged approach is definitely a way to go. Oh yeah, and that's that's been helpful to to your broader question of how have I prevented that, and that's that's how I think um, my my team has mitigated any anything um, of huge failure and huge resources commitment um, into it. So yeah. All right, uh, so let's make a pause here, and uh, we'll return after a short break. Sounds good. Hey, listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, this is Vlad, and I'd like to thank you for being a part of our audience. If you have any questions, if you want to be a part of this podcast, or if you want to introduce someone uh, for our podcast to be a part of it, feel free to contact me at askvlad at vgrubman.com or vgrubman.com slash podcast. Additionally, I'd really appreciate it if you guys uh, promoted the podcast any which way you like, uh, either a specific episode or the whole show. Since we're not asking you to donate anything, I'm not asking you to buy anything. It's really, you know, free as a beer value. Hopefully it's not, you know, whatever is free is worth what you pay for it. So uh, let everybody know. Uh, Tell your mom, tell your friend, tell your other friend. And um, hopefully we'll see more of you listening and providing feedback and having a dialogue around product management and all the other disciplines that touch product management in, um, in the technology world. Thank you again and keep listening. All right, this is uh, part two. Richard, hi again. Thanks for coming back. Hey, how's, yep. And um, let's uh, let's move on. Let's let's talk about the next thing uh, that uh, is on my list, and it's something you've mentioned before. Uh, the question that I wanted to pose was: How do you, given that your developers keep getting these panic emails, uh, urgent, yeah. urgent, urgent, and if if everything is urgent, nothing really sure. is. Um, how do you keep your roadmap in check? How do you actually make things happen if the your developers are constantly interrupted by all these urgent messages flashing in their faces? Sure, sure. Um, I can talk about where the beginning has uh, when we started service engineering and how I worked with the team to where it is now. Um, uh, when we first started it in, in a few quarters ago, um, the team, I would have a service, man, service engineering roadmap and that would usually I would commit things to that roadmap for 80% of our capacity, what resources I had um, out of the engineers. And that would constantly bite me in the butt. Um, I, I would have said, hey, here's the X features to the stakeholders. We will deliver it by end of Q1, for example. Um, and when Q1 rolled around, we would often hear those fire tickets that come in and we'd be deviating our own roadmap. And the purpose of the team was 
to accomplish and tackle those those fires that came in. So it defeated the purpose of what the team was initially um, um, created for. Um, and as the quarters went along, Q2, Q3, um, I think myself and the engineering manager I work with, we learned that we cannot commit double digit or 80% to 100% of our capacity at the beginning of the quarter in the in the when we started developing the roadmap. Um, we slowly realized we should commit to a quarter of what we're capable of for that quarter and things would automatically essentially trickle in. Um, urgent emails and so forth would just trickle in and we would cover the 100% of resource that we had for that quarter. Um, I think over time that has become a better um, uh, cadence for us, uh, for the engineering manager to understand, hey, here's the amount of engineering resources we have. Here's all the products and requests that come is coming down the pipe. Um, let's commit to 20%. And as the team grows, let's commit a little more, a little more, um, little bigger scope. Um, so yeah, that's how it's kind of, uh, derived over time. Wow. You went from hundred percent to 20%. To 20%. No, it's, wow. it's a big shift. Yeah. Well, it's not, not a positive, the big shift, not in the positive way, uh, at least from, from my perspective, but uh, you know, you can argue that it's a normal thing because you've tried to do things and then you sure. realized you were over committing. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not that you're not delivering enough. You're overcommitting. Yes, because there are other things. So, my understanding is there's there's a way out of this. You guys mm. are delivering more compared to what you used to. That's correct. Okay, that makes sense. So, how do you move forward? I, I kind of like this uh, yeah. form of asking. How do you move mm. forward when your hands are full? So, how do you move the product forward when you all you you spend eighty percent of your time fixing bugs? Yeah, I, I think that's. I, I leave that for the plat the the platform PMs that focus on where the platform will move and iterate to. Um, for for my team, and I guess I can speak directly for my my team. We do focus on the shorter wins, uh, the fires that come up, um, and smaller phases. Um, we do develop phase one POCs, um, point of concepts, ideas, and then we hand it off to the larger team, other PMs to actually tackle um, developing it out in the platform. A prime example was we did get, receive a request for something that could take a year to, for our whole company to invest engineering resources, people's time. Um, and that was a task that we picked up. We said, hey, we can do a POC. We can present something to the exec and say, hey, should we actually commit a year of engineering resource to develop this new product, this new idea? Um, we took it on, developed it within a quarter in our, our quarterly roadmap. Um, and we actually were able to save our company a year of engineering resources. Um, and we tackled that. So beyond just tackling defects and small feature wins, we also are capable of doing, or the team was uh, developed to be uh, more POC focused, um, MVP focused, I guess, in essence. Um, so I guess moving forward, how we, we change and how we, we actually accomplish more. Um, I think it's, it's a collaboration between the, the platform uh, roadmap and service engineering. How can we work together um, to move the platform forward? Because we have a lot of insight. Um, and the engineers that I've worked with, they have insight and they've moved from service engineering over to platform engineering. So that's how they level up, um, um, internally in their career ladder and so forth. So, um, there's some incentive for them to move, move and move on. Yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, I mean, you grow with the product and, and, yeah. and once you figured out, uh, what the underlying problems were or what the fires were mm -hmm. that you had to put out, it's easier for you to design uh, as you design the product. You keep in mind that hey, last time we tried something like that, it generated right. You know this whole firefight that nobody wanted. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, makes sense. So um, as a as as a whole, I think I understand. It's mm. not very typical, at least not in the way I have seen it mm -hmm. happen. Although I do see from time to time. Uh, teams having similar breakdown when mm -hmm. one team, one engineering team is set up as a um, product support team or engineering support. And the other mm -hmm. one is focused on the actual product development. It's rare. I mean, again, I, from my limited experience, I haven't seen teams that are sent on the support side uh, being called a product team. Mm -hmm. 
So, mm. I mean, they're a product team in, in, in agile sense of the word, as in they're, they're utilizing agile and they yeah. utilizing some kind of a agile approach, but they're not really product teams in the sense of developing the product. They're uh, firefighters, right? They're mm. not, they're not architects and, and uh, house builders. They're firefighters. They saving houses. They're not building them. Sure. And in that sense, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, th- it's, it's an interesting symbiosis and, I keep seeing uh, things like this uh, popping up. Uh, yeah. Things like this being uh, non-classical approaches or uh, some kind of a symbiotic uh, relationship between teams that are uh, kind of um, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Marriage of convenience, I mm-hmm. guess, would be a good one. Sure, sure. I think it's so, necessary, so- and like it's necessary in this world. At least I see it. Um, it's beneficial. It's um, it, it calms the nerves of the execs. Um, there's a win-win across the board. Um, there's architects that does focus on platform and product, um, and then they can actually influence how service engineering develops um, smaller wins or smaller defects. So um, I, I think it's, it's, it's beneficial from all the other PMs I've talked to, um, other smaller startups um, that are encountering this. Interesting. I'm, I'm not, uh, again, I don't, know enough to say it's uh, right. it's better or not yeah again based on my experience i've seen different things sure and and, and one of the reasons why we have uh guests on this podcast is that you guys have different experience <laughs> and we both come out hopefully smarter at least right. in some way out of this and uh, I'm, I'm i'm really happy that you guys find collaboration uh in terms of you know you're you're not in kind of this situation when uh i don't care about quality of this there's mm. other team they'll fix it they're smart enough they'll fix it yeah that uh, i'm happy that you guys are actually collaborating yep. and you see this as a mutually beneficial uh, or win-win uh relationship when they can rely on you to pick up things that inevitably fall through the cracks right. and you can rely rely on them uh knowing that will they will design to the best of their abilities. So if something actually falls through the cracks, it's not the, due to the negligence or mm. due to the lack of attention, it's because it's genuinely fall, fell through the cracks. Sure, sure. Okay, um, moving on, I, I'd like to um, kind of bring back one of the things you mentioned because it's, uh, it's the area that is really interesting mm. for us uh, people who host this show, mm-hmm. and it's especially interesting in these trying times when uh, everybody's working from home. I would like to bring back. You mentioned that your remote team is Puerto Rico. Yeah, uh, Costa Rica. Yeah, Costa Rica. I apologize, Costa Rica. Um, can you tell me what does your experience look like working with them? And my understanding is you're 100 percent remote. How do you guys? Not about it's not about tools. I don't yeah. care if you use Slack or Microsoft yeah. Teams or mm-hmm. Skype. Mm-hmm. I care about the relationships. I care about the how do you work? How do you make things done? How does that whole thing work out for you being the remote product manager, uh, the team that's I don't know a thousand miles away? Yeah, no. Um, I think when we first introduced the idea of Costa Rica, luckily their time zone is central. Um, it's two hours, uh, ahead of, of San Francisco. Um, right now it's, I learned we're only an hour away with, uh, daylight savings time. So it, it shifts, um, according to daylight savings, but, um, it helped being that the, um, engineering manager I work with is also based at Austin. Um, they, they work closely together. There's, there's no time change for him. Um, and, the team over there has is relatively young. Um, they're they're still early in their career. They're software engineers, other firms, and then they kind of banded together. Um, uh, Costa Rica. What I've noticed the difference between um, the San Francisco engineers and and the engineers I work with um, outside of a few handful, um, and they do evolve, um, become um, more self sufficient. The the engineers that I've worked with in Costa Rica have been more reliant on the PMs deriving what the view of what they're developing is um, um, they want to hear more of what technical solution will look like instead of the engineers in San Francisco, they want to hear more of the problem and they'll run off and, and build it and, and design it accordingly. Um, 
for for me, it's it's a it's a nice breath of fresh air in that sense that hey, I've worked with the designer. Here's the the wireframe. Um, here's the phasing that I see. Um, do you guys agree? Um, do can we work together on this? Um, but tooling wise, it's it's really open. Um, whenever they they have a question um, via Slack, I, I jump quickly on a Zoom. Um, it does. It feels very close. Where we're really closely knitted. Um, I visited Costa Rica about a month ago, and when I saw them in person for for real, realistically the first time for over a year, um, it was really normal. Um, we we spoke so frequently on a day to day basis that when I saw them in person, it was like I knew them. Um, it was uh, it was that kind of relationship, um, even to thousands of miles away. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a fun fun collaboration walking them through um, how I think in, in person. So, yeah. I see. Interesting. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, I had uh, a lot of experience working with remote teams back mm. before it became a thing. Huh. I had my own company that basically the irregular outsourcing thing. Sure. But uh, we've talked and I hired people all over the world, uh-huh. uh, literally all over the world. And uh, it was uh, not even a voice communication back then. It was oh. problematic. It was wow. just just t- typing, a lot of typing and a mm-hmm. lot of uh, conversations uh, through um, just written text. Uh, then we moved on to voice communication. Now you have can, you can have video pretty much in oh, yeah. any part of the world. So right. it gets easier with the time. Yep. What would you say the biggest challenge is if you're talking about different geographical regions and and, and I, if 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 I can, mm-hmm. if I may, I want you to think about it not necessarily a technical challenge. You know, oh, they have slower internet or something yeah. like that, or like a cultural thing. Like yeah. they treat certain things differently from you, and you treat things differently from them. Yeah, um, I think time zone wise, India has been um, slightly difficult um, in San Francisco. They're they're hours hours ahead of us. Um, I think cultural. Culturally wise, the team there is their working hours, at least the ones that we work with, um, the working hours might differ. They're, they're not a nine to five work business hour time type of um, path there for their engineers. They come online, they, they code, um, they do their daily standups and then they go home, eat. Um, I, I feel like they have more of a, a blend between um, the, the business and social. So they're um, more flexible. Um, I took a call earlier today with a, a team in India and they were, it was midnight um, and they were happy and to, to both get on a call. And, and it seems to be the normal culture. I, I could be very wrong, um, but that's my, um, per, I, that's what I've seen so far. Um, it's, it's interesting. They, they've kind of adapted to um, what the, the, the SF culture is like. Um, they, they've adapted to our time zone, I guess is probably the better statement, um, at least for the people that I work with. Wow, that's definitely interesting. Uh, yeah. Definitely different from what I've seen. And uh-huh. being myself, being uh, you know originally from Eastern Europe, mm. I when I was starting back when I had my own business, I tended to hire people from uh-huh. Eastern Europe because uh-huh. we shared the same language, same legacy, same kind of you know history. Sure. It was funny that when I just started doing that, mm-hmm. everybody was very eager to work whatever hours I needed to work. Mm. So if, let's say right. if I needed needed them to work early morning hours, they yep. were okay with that. If right. I needed them to work a late night shift, they would yep. be okay with that. They would adjust. Right. Um, then some time passed that I didn't have any exposure whatsoever to outsourcing or mm-hmm. offshore development. I was working with uh, everything where everything was inside in-house teams. Mm-hmm. Then I came back to it at a couple of companies and the situation completely changed. No one ever cared about what my hours were. Uh-huh. They had their nine to five uh-huh. and that's it. If I wanted to get their attention, I needed to get up at five o'clock in the morning oh, wow. and get in there, stand up. Yes. And get in there, stand up. I, mm-hmm. My boss, uh, CIO, at the yeah. time, he was uh, getting up at 4.30 at five in the morning so he can make it to most of their activities. He was That was kind of a different story. Right. He was very much into micromanagement, so he would mm-hmm. be on every daily stand up and uh, CIO of a company, and every every little thing, every meeting, everything he had to be there, mm-hmm. and you know it kind of 
you know, self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're in the every meeting, then nobody makes any decisions un- unless you're in the meeting. And yeah. now, now your presence is mandatory. Right. But again, it's 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 uh, it's a whole other story. But the culture was completely different. Like we don't care what your hours are. Hours are nine to five, yeah. ten to six, if you really ask for it. But then that's it. We're going home. And um, I'm, I was wondering if you have seen any <laughs> any shifts like that in in your experience. Not in my experience. Um, I've seen more that the teams be flexible. It seems like their work-life balance is more blended. Um, at least the, the engineers that we work with in um, in India and Costa Rica, we, we do have a team in Australia and they do hold that strict time frame you, you had mentioned. Um, and they're I don't know if it's more established or, or the leader that's running um, the, the Australia team is more stringent on work from from nine to five and all the PM, the PM manage, managing their workload um, will have to play around with their schedules and, and, and pick up calls then. So um, I don't know how does your team in, with the CIO, um, were they based out of Eastern Europe as well? Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. I mean, CIO was here in New York. I was here in New York. Uh, the dev teams were all in Eastern Europe. Right. And the problem was that uh, there was only so many hours uh, in a day, yep. three, four hours in a day that you can have all these meetings and they actually wanted to have some work done. Sure. <laughs> and uh, you basically, that, that's why things took way longer. Not And, and that's yeah. kind of like your, your remote work experience. Things took longer, not because the team was not productive. Mm-hmm. Technic, uh, not, okay, wrong choice of words. Not because the team was not productive on the technical aspects of things. It was because team was not productive in making their own decisions or was not enabled mm-hmm. to make their own decisions. So everything had to be vetoed or um, approved by uh, just a couple of people. Just, okay, let's rephrase that. Just by a handful of people. It need to be approved by a handful of people. Sure. And uh, that, was, uh, that was kind of a, um, a bottleneck. Yeah, it seems like how I mean that that's an interesting bottleneck. Yeah, um, but that's I guess that's more towards more, more speaks more towards uh, the management style rather than yeah. you know teams uh, teams way of doing things. Uh, but it is what it is. So while yeah. we're talking about uh, while we're staying on the topic of uh, working remotely, uh, obviously, given that you know this is. March 2020, or this episode is probably going to uh, get out in April 2020. Right. Um, what is your What are your thoughts on working from home versus working from office, where you can at least see some of your colleagues, uh, some of your peers in the office? What are your thoughts on uh, yeah. doing this completely in a complete isolation? I think personally, for me, I enjoy going into the office, seeing things change, talking to stakeholders, um, here and just being in the ground floor, um, that has helped a lot, um, with my growth, just being next to the sales team, seeing what they're selling, um, being close to the engineering groups, um, asking questions, um, in an ad hoc kind of way, um, being remote or being working from home. It's, it's nice that I don't have to travel or 30 minutes to go to the office, but, um, there's a slight difference. Personally, I enjoy being in the office, even though I'm sitting there and on headphones. Um, I still feel comfortable around other people working. Um, but my whole team is remote. So um, to say that's um, necessary, I, I don't think it's essential for, for this team. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I, was more, I was more interested in um, like your personal experience, personal feeling. Mm-hmm. I, I understand it's not necessary for the team. It's more of a, you know, how does it make, how does that make you feel? Yeah. So that's, that's the question really. How does that make you feel when you're not there? Well, I guess feeling wise, I feel like there's certain conversations that are happening right now in backdoor conversations and Slack, Slack channels, um, things that I'm not pervy to. And I think it just, the information is not there. Um, in, in, in the office, I can hear conversations happening here and there and I can chime in and, and help resolve it or chime in and clarify certain things. Um, those conversations are now completely gone in, in, in ether, in, in the air. Um, either they're not happening or they're happening um, in, in a manner that's that's not um, – yeah, that's my feeling. I feel like there's 
there's a, I'm missing out on something that's, I guess that's what I've noticed. Um, yeah, that, that's actually, it's actually a thing. It's, there's, there's a word for it. Mm. Uh, I think uh, FOMO <laughs> is, is the abbreviation. Yeah. Fear of missing out. Right, right. Um, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, it's interesting that you brought up these like small conversations. Mm. There's, there was this book I read. And I, uh, I don't mean to uh, to promote it. Uh, it's just I, I uh, kind of liked it. Uh, that's that's why I'm talking mm-hmm. about it. And um, I think if I'm not mistaken, it's called the turn, turning the ship around mm-hmm. or turn the ship around, something like that. The one of the one of the thoughts or one of the main methods of making things happen right, right. was having these small conversations when you don't have to call in a meeting mm-hmm. to discuss something when you can just talk to a person or a group of persons in the hallway and uh, resolve it. And 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 uh, the book is actually about a nuclear submarine mm-hmm. in U.S. Navy, uh, how they, uh, technically speaking, how they implemented agile methods in running the submarine. Uh, to to, to yeah. <laughs> simplify to simplify the story, and, uh, and one of the things that they praised uh, really high was uh, having these small off-site uh, conversations. And they do help by only uh, absolutely they, they they help. Oh yeah, yeah. We're almost at the time of our second part, second segment, and I'd like to ask to give you an opportunity to ask me a question if you have any, and hopefully again, hopefully it's a question that I can answer in a couple of minutes. And as I keep saying, let's not uh, let's let's not solve the world hunger just sure. yet uh, on this episode. But if there are any question, uh, if there are a question or questions for me that you would like to ask, by all means, this is this is your chance. This is your opportunity. Yeah, I had a few. Um, I'm, I'm curious how, since you've worked at many products, um, product roles, there's there's certain products that exist in the market, and if you, if you own if you're an owner of a product and it eventually goes away, expires, um, cannibalizing an old product and moving on with the new iteration or something completely different. How have you cannibalized old products? Um, what's the best rollout? What 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 models have you seen successful and fail and, and so forth? Um, have you seen that in your in your past? Yeah, yes, definitely. And uh, I wouldn't call it cannibalizing no. okay. um, because, and again, just because of uh, the experience mm. that I had. It's the it's the next next version, next release, or um, new product that kind of a you know descendant of of uh, of the previous of the previous one uh, so it's definitely not cannibalization mm-hmm. it's more of a you know generations one generation is past is passing and and new generation is taking over uh, because the old generation is incapable of doing things that are needed now sure and I've seen this a couple of times uh, one was my own product oh. v1 so to say. And what happened was it was developed in a rapid application development uh, tool. So there were a lot of limitations around how things were done, how things were built, and how things were deployed. And it was it worked as a prototyping and first iteration mm-hmm. and you know basic MVP type of a thing. But once we figured that this approach works. Once we've figured that we're on the right track, we're doing everything right, we've uh, we've succeeded in identifying the solution to the need of a customer. The decision was made to expand the development team. Now we had a lot more resources, so we can uh, instantly we had a capacity to build a more sustainable model, mm. uh, code that's easier, better managed, and that is uh, more sustainable moving forward because uh, you can only um in, in in that particular rapid application development environment that we were using at the time uh making changes was really cumbersome got it so every time you needed to go from uh dev to stage to production it was it was a hassle probably worse than you would have in the in the regular uh pipeline CICD pipeline mm-hmm. and um eventually uh, we came to to the point when the risk of breaking something in production was far greater than a probability of de- deploying something successful. Okay, and 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 we kind of saw that happening. It was it was um, it was a pretty close call uh, at some point. So we figured if we know that this is scaling, if we know that 
this is a scale solution that we're going to need for multiple use cases. Why not start early, invest early in building a sustainable, scalable solution mm -hmm. so that we don't have to resolve this later when it's going to cost us 10, 15, 20 times more. And that's, that's, that's what happened to that particular product. It was kind of phased out in, in exchange for something more robust and easier to maintain. Um, another example was a legacy product mm -hmm. that was about uh, 15 years old. Okay. Uh, it's a desktop application. And everybody wants to work on the phone or a tablet. And no one, really, nobody wants to work on the desktop. Yeah. And, uh, the, but the, however, the problem was that there were so many legacy features. There were so many things that were built on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like that, um, you know, old building. If you start scraping off the paint off the wall, yeah. you start, you start finding, uh, old uh, wallpapers. Under those wallpapers, you see some magazine pages from magazines. You see some <laughs> newspapers from you know last century. You keep digging. You keep uncovering more interesting stuff. But all of it is useless. All of it is uh, you know hmm. is, is uh, needs to all of it needs to go. You need to start from scratch. And uh, that's that's what company did. They started uh, building a brand new thing. Of course, not without their own set of failures, but at least it was a more contemporary solution. At least it was working on mobile. At least it was working on uh, contemporary hardware mm. with more modern methodologies built in. Sure. So again, uh, it was more like a generation's passing and a new generation taking over because it was more, now it reached the maturity stage and now it, it can safely take over what you know your granddaddy did. No, that's good. That that's a good approach. I mean, that, that's great to hear your experience through those processes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, glad <laughs> glad I was able to answer yeah. that. Um, any other any other questions? Any anything else? Yeah. Um. I I spoke about during my my talk earlier about consumption adoption into a feature. Um. What models have you seen work and fail? Um. You've built the feature out. Um. And you have stakeholders and users that don't actually. Um, consume that? Well, what models, how can you force that? Maybe force is a strong word, but how can you guide them to start using that functionality though they requested it months ago? Oh, that That is a great question. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, the problem is not adoption. Okay. The problem is delivery cycle mm -hmm. is too long and you need to, you need to keep asking why. Okay. Why did they... Why did they request that feature several months ago? What was the problem they were trying to solve? And hopefully, because you've already developed that feature, you should already have the answer to that. Sure. And then when you start approaching the delivery, technically you need to do these sync ups uh, pretty pretty often. Oh yeah. In 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 my playbook, uh, the one that I'm kind of developing and standing behind, it's at least monthly. Ah. So if you didn't catch that. <laughs> you mentioned several months, right? Yeah. So if you haven't caught that in any of those monthly sync ups, it means either nobody really cares about your monthly sync ups or yeah. something just happened. And and, and it do does happen, yeah. like coronavirus right. happened, right. right? Things have changed. Same thing uh, when um, uh, legalized marijuana was introduced. Mm. Uh, there, was, there was a surge in apps that allowed you to uh, process transactions right. and then a new legislation came in and now you have to if you want to trade in that uh, merchandise now you have to track literally everything it's it was worse than uh, HIPAA compliance and it's like overnight the market died so there are certain things that can happen pretty rapidly and you don't have time to respond mm -hmm. to that and 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 that happened so that you for, again you need to keep asking why why did they care about it six months ago three months ago why they don't care about it now what changed what happened and once you have those answers it would be easier for you to understand how to guide them into using or or adopting this feature or this application this uh, capability it could be that um, you know it's not relevant anymore you're late you took too long to develop unfortunately these things still happen and and it's a sad truth that Oh wait! You just wasted a whole bunch of resources right. for nothing. It could be that they perceive it as useless now, but there's a way to change things, and there was a way to reposition it. 
and it also does happen. Like I, I don't have a good example off the top of my head, but um, I have something tangentially relevant um, in in my mind. Um, there are certain like I was developing a prototype of a of a solution <laughs> that had fifteen different capabilities, and everybody said you only need two or three. Throw out everything else. And I was really upset for that. Uh, turns out the amount of information that those two or three capabilities were bringing in was overwhelming already. So if I, whether I had those 15 or not, nobody would be using them because of overload of information overload. We needed to train our users to absorb the initial uh, stage, the initial phase of uh, the product before we could move, move forward. So basically, in other words, market was not ready to uh, use those features. And, and that's kind of same thing. So you, your market need to be ready. You can't be the only person who can read your own handwriting. Uh, you, you, you have to have other people uh, be able to figure it out. So why, why, why? There's the five whys. Yeah. And, and that should land you somewhere around the solution, somewhere in the vicinity of, uh, okay, I see what the problem is. So how do I tackle it? How do I approach it? No, that's a that's and great. Then, yeah, that's a great way to to frame it. it. It's it's always chaotic, I guess. Um, I don't think there's a one solution, and it's situational based. So it's it's fun to discuss. Oh, it's, it's a yeah, yeah. I agree. Yep. All right. Um, so uh, hopefully that was useful for you as it was for me. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> hearing yeah. about your your part of uh, your side of story, and hearing about your very interesting symbiotic relationship. Um, between your product teams. Um, thank you so much, Richard. I appreciate you being a guest on our show. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope this is not the last time. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely not. You've been listening to The Real World Product Management and I've been your host, Vlad Grubman. Until the next time...